This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jane Gross. Download the MP3 of our produced show with her at onbeing.org. I love radio because I don't have to worry about what I look like. Yeah. You know, in my jammies. Well, and all you of look that. just fine. It's fine. But, and so, let me turn this okay, off. Okay, thank you it for was, turning it off. It was such a relief. Um. I mean, even though I had to get dressed, <laughs> not to have to. True, you do have to go out in public. What? <laughs> well, I mean, it, there's you know, there's you dressed look. and there's dressed. Exactly. You look so um, But I've never done this long okay. before, no, so okay. I keep thinking. Oh, nice. nice. You, you got a notepad. You you are ready to go. And I don't know whether I need this, but I brought it. To be prepared, that's right. Yeah. And yeah, that's I don't know whether it would be cold. It might or be, yeah. Hot. The AC is on, but yeah, make yourself comfortable. All right. Um, all this water. So the only thing yeah. I have to worry about is peeing in my pants, right? <laughs> you can take a break if necessary. Oh, is that true? Or you can just ask the other side. But I'll just um, I'll just make sure. No, I mean I've everything is gone than longer than that. Okay. All right. But um, I also called Susan as I was driving mm-hmm. up because I didn't want them to freak at the fine. other end. No, they they know and they're waiting for uh, you. That's fine. They're already connected. And we've already tested things, so Great. you should be able to hear them through the headphones. Yes? Oh, oh, yeah. That's right. You'll hear them better on the headphones. There you go. And now what say do hello. I do? Say hello? Say hello. I'm saying hello. <laughs> Hi. Hello, Christy. You have, as you already know, a great admirer. <laughs> Ah. Okay. I was laughing on my way over here that, you know, at my age, an hour without a bathroom is a long time. (laughs) Well, never fear. It's okay. Um, I understand we also share an editor. We do, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I wasn't actually sure if John was your editor or if he just, uh, I meant to look that up in the book, but, no, or if he, he was just a friend. He yeah. is. No, mm-hmm. he's my editor. He's great. You know, I haven't really worked with him yet. This is my first project, and so we haven't, and I haven't actually given him much to work with. So, uh, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have him. I think he's, he's, a, he's a fabulous line editor. Mm-hmm. And in an there are many of those people I'm left. I'm told nobody edits exactly. anymore. Exactly. I know. I'm so looking forward to that. Not always terribly diplomatic. <laughs> right. A great line editor. Yeah. I'm ready for that, too. <laughs> Stealing myself. I wasn't. I wasn't. Okay. <laughs> well, let's... Um, let, let's let, I'm sorry. I'm getting... Yeah. Oh, you want me to talk to the other end? Sorry, I'm talking to my... Uh, producer behind uh-huh. the glass. Oh, would okay. So, Chris, uh, my producer is asking, could you turn your headphones down a little bit? You may have to ask them how to uh, do that. Um, 
I'm in a closed room, so let me. Okay, because I'm behind two locked doors. I sort okay. of feel like I'm on yeah. that old-fashioned. I think, did she do that, Chris, do you think? Okay. Reminds me of that corrupt quiz show where the guy was locked in the booth. Oh. <laughs> okay. So now they want me to talk. You want me to, you just, are you getting levels? Um, okay. Well, let me, I think, I think you've been talking to Susan and I think she explained, I, I don't really do, I don't do book interviews per se, but obviously we want to talk about what's in the book, right? But I just want to talk about the experience uh, in the book and behind the book and maybe even, and, and, and draw out some things that, um, that have been part of that whole experience, but weren't the the part the point of the exercise of of, of writing the book. I, yep. I think you get this. Mm-hmm. You're a journalist, you yep. know. So, yep. and you've heard the show. Um, but to, uh, absolutely, of course, we will. You know, we'll flag the book, and so it will work for the book. <laughs> I also know what the situation you're in now with this bringing this thing into the world. So, well, and the fact that it's a topic that scares people who think it's too depressing to think about makes right, it. Right, right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I don't think it's depressing, but, mm-hmm. you know, you have to persuade the buyer that it isn't depressing. Right. Well, there was a line that I pulled out uh, from the book. I think it may have been in the first chapter. I'm not sure. But I thought it was a good—I thought I would read it back to you, and it's a, a way to frame kind of where I want to uh, to zoom in today. Um you talk about this experience that you're describing as your experiences on the far shore of caregiving, an all-consuming and life-altering experience that rings you out, uses you up, and then sends you back into the world with your heart full and your eyes open if you let it. So I want to talk a little bit about the ringing you out business, <laughs> but also really explore, you know, what, what's the nature of that, that full heart and what does it open your eyes to? Um, so I don't know if that's helpful, but I, I thought I would uh, that just is offer helpful. that. Okay. And so, uh, but I want to start um, where, where I start with everyone and just uh, ask if there was a, uh, a religious or spiritual background to your childhood. Well, I was raised um, a non-practicing cultural Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we went to synagogue exactly as long as it took my kid brother to be bar mitzvahed. Um, And the identification was much more intellectual. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we read books, we did well in school, we listened to NPR. Um, It was, you know, it was much more that cultural piece of Judaism than any kind of practical Mm -hmm. religious piece. On the other hand, the cultural thing was really drummed into us as children. Right. And, you know, another question that occurred to me as I I thought about talking to you um, in terms of just, you know, beginning the conversation with um, a bit of a sense of the sweep of life. Um, I wonder, did you, what did you imagine old age would be? When, when you were growing up, your own, that of, that of your parents, that of yourself, it, it, it made me think, wonder, you know, did we think about this when we were growing up? Yeah. I think that I didn't think about it. Um, by the time I was born, 
only two of my four grandparents were alive. Mm-hmm. Um, one died suddenly and, you know, was a vibrant man and then kerplunk in the street the next day. Um, the one on the... Ma- that would have been my pa- maternal grandfather. Mm-hmm. My maternal grandmother sort of hung on forever, but was not really much a part of my life. And for most of the end part of it, I was in California, so she wasn't kind of physically present. Right. Um, My father was younger than I am now when he died. He was only 61. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was no multi-generational aging going on. And we also lived in a kind of white bread, not quite Levittown, but that sort of suburb Mm. where everybody was more or less the same age and raising their children. I mean, I don't even really remember seeing old people when I was growing up. Right, right. And, you know, I think that that's kind of an amazing backdrop to the story that you have to tell and to this piece of our common life that you've done your journalism about these last years, that the very nature of aging and of dying has kind of changed in real time, in our lifetimes. And even, I think, in terms of imagination, uh, even in the last decade. So, you know, there was a story that you tell in that book um, about I believe you were present when a geriatrician, Joanne Lynn, was asking an audience of people yes. who were who were all yes. health experts of one kind or another, how many of yes. you expect to die? <laughs> and people didn't know whether, I mean, they didn't, everyone did not shoot their hand up. <laughs> and then she asked them, would you prefer to be old when it happens? And in fact, those two questions and the reactions that we have to them are kind of out of sync with the knowledge that you have about this and that she had about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, she does that presentation frequently and apparently always gets the same reaction. And, you know, what was so striking to me is that um, she gave them kind of the easy choices first and (laughs) left the really hard one until the end and then they had sort of run out of things to raise their hand about. Uh Uh-huh. Um, but there's this horribly long in-between time that didn't used to exist. Between just living, Between aging, and dying. Between fine and dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the thing that um, I think is sort of new and the result of medical technology. And everybody wants to believe that they're parent and even on some level more importantly themselves are going to be you know perfectly healthy climbing the Himalayas one day and dead the next right playing tennis at 80 or 90 you wrote correct yeah correct Mm -hmm. um and it's the in-between time that now for so many people lasts so long and that you know, I'm not even sure if we had grown up surrounded by old people, if we would have witnessed that in between time. Right, back then. right, right. That it's new in a way. It's something we've medicine has made possible. 
I mean, you in that same vignette, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this was new to me. You, you, you talked about this geriatrician explained to people that cancer deaths actually peak at 65. And when people have cancer, I mean, that's... I don't know, someone said to me recently, cancer has gone in our lifetime from being a death sentence to a chronic illness, right? And that, that people often have excellent care and that cancer often punctuates a life that's otherwise up to then been vigorously lived. Um, but that when you... I mean, you said that, that the idea that you're going to get an easy and affordable passing after 85... Um, is magical thinking, and somehow Correct. we're not living with this, with this understanding. No, and even when someone tells you that and sort of mm-hmm. shows you the data around it, um, the magical thinking is a perfect word for it because mm-hmm. you know they look at the data and they say, "Well, you know, not my father." Mm-hmm. Um, and then are utterly unprepared for how long it might last um, and how much it's going to cost. And that it's about, it's about frailty, right? It's that it's a, it is about increasing frailty as opposed to something dramatic. Uh, yes. Or maybe it's I mean, a series of dramatic I mean, you essentially die things. of nothing. Hmm. Um, I mean... My mother, who had a mouth on her, as you know, you can certainly tell if you read the book, yeah. would say to me all the time that you know the big reward for not dying of one of these diseases and getting to be eighty-five was that you got to rot to death. Mm. And your mother, um, it sounds like she was was she eighty-eight. Estelle was her name, let's go, right? Yes. And that it was mm-hmm. she 88 when she really, she really also was one of these people who had a, a, a was pretty fine, right? Um, and then hit an age where just all uh, kinds yeah. of I things. Yeah, I mean, she was it. fine and then all of a sudden in a hundred small ways, mm-hmm. none of which were going to kill her, not fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she, yeah, she went from being fine to being really dependent on other people, mm-hmm. strangers and her children, um, without a lot of warning in between. And you, you, you quote this phrase a few times, her lament um, that we live too long and die too slowly, which is, again, another and very grace, beautiful in a way, lovely, eloquent way of talking about this this way we medicine and culture have kind of reinvented aging and dying but but we haven't really and i think this is a lot of what you're writing about and you're blogging is we we it's happened so quickly that we've hardly had a chance to make sense i think that that's right also i think that um very few people professional people tell you along the way that just because you can fix X or Y or Z doesn't mean that you should fix X or Y or Z. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's much easier to say yes to everything than it is to say no to things. And... And when you say that, you're also talking about um, 
the in your case and in all as is often the case the children who then become the caregivers right that it becomes this collaborative uh yes this joint effort and i mean that's I'd like to, you know, draw that out. I mean, there's there's the experience your mother had. Your mother died in 2003, so I mean, she's not here to to speak for herself, and yet I think you you give voice to her. But then, but what you have really written about in great detail, and and also drawn out other people's stories on, is the other side of that experience, which was your experience. Um. Yeah, and for. A long time, you know, I the locution that I would use is that, you know, I the feeling of becoming your mother's mother. Right, uh, right. The more time I had to think about that, the more persuaded I became that you never quite become your mother's mother. You increasingly get closer to that place, but as long as they're cognitively intact... Um, Part of the trick, I think, is taking over enough, but not humiliating them, essentially. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit about um, that line and, and how you came to, to see it, even to be able to perhaps describe it for others as they approach it. Which line? Well, what you just said, and it's, you know, another way you wrote about this is as a question, you know, how do we become our parents' parents without robbing them of their dignity? How do they let us? So how do you, how did you come to see, how, 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 do, how do you know to recognize um, that line between robbing them of their dignity or, or assuming a new role which may be unfamiliar and yet appropriate at that stage for both of you? Well, I mean, it's certainly easier to see um, where my brother and I did it right and where my brother and I did it wrong in retrospect mm-hmm. than it is to see it when it's going on. Right. Because it, when it's going on, a lot of it is, you know, sort of lurching from crisis to crisis. Um, and... Um, in some ways, it's easier when a parent is cognitively intact and in other ways I suppose it's not easier. I mean if you're dealing with a parent who has advanced Alzheimer's disease there really isn't any question who's in charge Right. after a certain point. Right. Um, my mother was you know very much in charge until the very end, once the feeling that we were lurching from crisis to crisis was under control. Okay. Um, she was quite, this is a terrible word, but um, she was actually more childlike earlier in the process than towards the end of the process because she was so frightened. Um once she got her mind around what her situation was, you mm-hmm. know, which was essentially paralyzed, incontinent, um, either bed or wheelchair ridden, um, could no longer speak and was losing the ability to swallow, um, 
you know, then she sort of... She was really clear at that point. Mm. She also was very clear once she was in a nursing home environment, which is partly why I have this really um, counterintuitive feeling about nursing homes. I mean, we do a lot of things during the process to keep them from winding up there um, Mm -hmm, because... mm -hmm. Somehow or other, we believe that there's no worse thing that you can possibly do. Um, On the other hand, um, in a good nursing home, um, there's an awful lot of psychological support, an awful lot of social support, an awful lot of um, religious support. In right. fact, you know, your religious question early on was interesting because in our saga, the rabbi becomes uh, an astonishingly, astonishingly important part of the piece, at least for me. Mm-hmm. It, even when that, that uh, an overt religiosity hadn't been part of your family culture, but as you said, that, that cultural, that identity was there. Yeah, and he was, you know, I mean, I suppose it takes a special kind of rabbi to choose to work in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. Um, he and my mother, after my mother was done cursing him out, um, <laughs> rather liked each other. Uh, and um, he was very comforting to me, mm-hmm. um, comforting and important enough to me that while my mother had always insisted that she didn't want that kind of funeral, um, the rabbi uh, buried her. Mm-hmm. And she knew was, that was she wanted that to happen at the end. No, she had no idea that was going to happen. That was the decision that my brother and I made after she was dead. Is this is this the part? I'm sorry. And in the book, do you, where you say there's there's one story you tell, and I can't remember this one where you said to someone, "No, this was about her dentures, wasn't it?" Where you said, "She'll kill me. <laughs> yes. She'll kill me if I don't get to put her dentures <laughs> right, back right, in." And the right, person right. said to you, "She's dead." <laughs> well, that's the rabbi. Actually, that was the rabbi. Okay. Came back in order to sit with me mm-hmm. with the body, which oddly enough is a tradition among very religious Jews that all of a sudden was hugely important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, that even dead, that, you know, she not be lying there alone waiting for the guys who do whatever it is they do come. Um, But, yeah, he he was a very interesting, funny man. And, um... (laughs) I sort of made a command decision that since another of her dictums kind of was that funerals were for the living and not for the dead, that I was allowed to make a command decision that right. this lovely man was going to conduct the funeral. Right. Um, so, you know, when when you and I first began talking a few minutes ago, you... You you t- you talked about how it in this subject that you've taken on of end of life care and the new old age that that often people 
uh, are not sure they want to hear about this or read about it because it sounds depressing. And, you know, talking about nursing homes is depressing and about death is depressing. I, I also sense that part of the point you want to make, having lived through this, is it's also just a truth about life. I mean... Well, I mean, I would not have expected this at the outset. Um, My mother and I had a difficult, very difficult relationship. And, you know, I didn't race to the loving caregiver's role Mm -hmm. with um, an open heart, shall we say. I sort of weighed in my mind what seemed to me like the lesser of two evils. You know, was I going to do this because it was the right thing to do um, or was I going to bail and feel guilty for the rest of my life and on balance, you know, with that as the rock and a hard place, I decided, you know, do it and do it right. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of expectation, if any expectation at all, that it was going to be redemptive, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But um it was i mean it was um after we'd sort sort of muddled our way through the crises and the mistakes um it was it was it's really a time when a certain kind of family repair is possible hmm. Unless you're fortunate enough to come from the kind of family where there's no repair work to be done. I haven't met any of those people. (laughs) Well, neither have I, actually. And so for you, it was between you and your brother. I mean, here's another question. Well, it was between me and my mother, too. Right, 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 right. Um, I mean, it's um, also a story I tell in the book, but... um, um, my mother told me I looked pretty for the first time in my life when she could barely speak anymore. Mm. And she told me she loved me for the first time in my life on an alphabet board. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, you know, some pretty interesting, surprising things can happen at that stage. Um, if, if and be, And my brother and I, I mean, my brother didn't have... The issues, if you will, with my mother that I did, but um, we weren't close until we were forced into this collaboration. Hmm. Um, and, you know, so that's the other redemptive piece is to be sort of left with a different kind of relationship with a sibling than I had before. Have you have you heard um do you think that this is a common experience of um uh, of undergoing this kind of repair? You started the the New Old Age blog in part to open up this discussion with other people. I mean, I don't know if redemptive is a word everyone would use, but but do you hear versions of that, echoes of that in other stories? Um, well, 
Because as a result of the blog and as a result of a number of years of writing about this for the paper, New York, you know, the mm-hmm. New York Dead Times. Tree, New York Times. Yeah. Um, and because we were late children and therefore were going through this ahead of our friends and colleagues, mm. um, most of what people talk to me about is how do you do this, how do you do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I hear more stories about the relational piece of it, interestingly, from the old people. Hmm. Hmm. Then their then their caregiver children. Yeah. I mean I, I think at the point that they're going through it, the children are so caught up, and I'm not suggesting that we weren't also in um, what does Medicare cover, um, how does assisted living work, you know, do I hire a home health aide from an agency or over the back fence. I mean, the the practical parts of it are so overwhelming when you're trying to figure them all out all at once that you don't really have time to think very much about the reparative part of it, which I actually think is part of why I had such a strong and positive reaction to the nursing home stage of this, because all of the tasks, if you will, got Mm. taken out of Michael and my hands at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was a very proud woman, and so, you know, when anything that had to do, you know, with intimate bodily stuff was going on, I was thrown out of the room. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, you know, so that that made the other stuff possible. We had time to do the other stuff because we weren't um, taking care of her at home. I mean, I think your story, the the guts of it, right, and those hard places in particular is probably helpful for people just in, you know, naming. I mean, what you describe is so many people in our culture right now um, in this situation who get caught between guilt and exhaustion, if not utter helplessness and a sense of failure because, as you say, these tasks are completely unexpected. People are unequipped for them. Uh, Yeah. Also, um, at the same time, um, and this I do hear from the people in my age group, um, it kicks up all the dust of childhood. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody sort of becomes who they were when they were 10. It's a terrible thought. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh-huh. And um, I'm not even sure it's avoidable, except I wish that I had thought about it in those terms, you mm, know, when it mm. was going on. I mean, the number of 
arguments that my brother and I had, for instance, and you know, we had what I would describe as an excellent collaboration in terms of the actual division of labor. Um, but all the fights ultimately boil down to some version of mommy loved you more than she loved me. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something you would say to people to try to be more aware of that? It's, it's, it sounds yes. like a hard order, yes. too. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not sure what you do mm-hmm. once you're aware of it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as a person who deals in language, Mm -hmm. I think simply naming it is probably helpful. Right. You know, there's, to me, in your writing, there's another interesting word that recurs. um, If I think, if I kind of read between the lines about unexpected learnings, and it's about time and timing. You know, you say... One of the great challenges to figure out, again, we talked about this a minute ago, what, when's the time to take charge? Um, the importance of slowing things down and demanding time to make decisions when in the middle of some of these crises you, you feel pressed to make snap judgments about things you, you don't understand. You also use this phrase describing this entire experience of this period of living in the eternal present tense. Well, I mean, you have no idea how long it's going to last. You have no idea what's going to happen next. Um, And I think for so many of us, and, you know, this obviously is an upper-middle-class thing to say in a certain way, but, you know, we're mostly people who have been enormously successful in our professional lives and are used to feeling in control of what we're doing. And, you know, you make a to-do list and you check everything off the to-do list. And then when you get to the bottom of the page, whatever the task is, you're done. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean... I started doing yoga in the middle of this. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get that. I mean, um, you know, I think I heard another interview where, where you, or a talk where you, you said you're a journalist, and is your, bro- your brother's a journalist as well? Yes. And, you know, that you were people who know how to pick up the phone and ask a question and get the answer. <laughs> I mean, we just thought that the faster we moved, essentially— mm-hmm. And the faster we ticked all these things off the list, the faster we could get back to what our lives had been like before. Um, What it took us a long time to realize is that we were never going to go back to our lives as they were before in the practical sense um, until she died. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't life like we like could was... solve these problems, right. you know, fix right. her, put the wheels back on the broken bicycle, and then go back about our business. And the not knowing how long it's going to last and what's going to happen next, I think, you know, the more of a control freak you are to start out with, the more disorienting that is. 
So, you know, there was this interesting juxtaposition in, in terms of time for me in your story um, about this happening with your mother and then uh, being a journalist on September 11th, 2001, mm. and being one of the people who covered that for The New York Times. Um, because it, it, you, you wrote, you've written uh, what, you, what you just said, that being clueless and vulnerable is a central and unavoidable part of this experience of going through this long death of a parent. Um, and I've, I've often, I've thought about how September 11th for Americans as a culture was a moment of unexpected vulnerability. Um, and you actually, I mean, were one of these impossible uh, situations was happening to you in those in on that day and in those days following, where you had work to do, which was arguably <laughs> very important, right? And your mother was taking another turn for the worse. Um, yeah, and you know, you it's it's an almost shameful thing to say, but I was um, um, I was grateful for the work. Mm-hmm. And I was grateful that the work was, you know, of the size and magnitude where um, I could really throw myself into it and get my head out of this other thing. Yeah. Um, but the the not knowing, you know, how long is um, um, really sort of tests one's ability to live in the moment. Right, right. <laughs> and um, and your mother's reaction to that, to September 11th? Well, my mother was, you know, in a confused and strange circumstance because she had just had surgery and um she we already knew that where she was going post surgery was the nursing home mm-hmm. and we had been assured that the social workers at the hospital and the social workers at the nursing home since you know by definition there's a great deal of turnover in nursing homes that it wouldn't be long before there was a bed, but that they would keep her in the hospital until there was a bed. So the anomaly here is that the city of New York is still waiting for this great deluge of injured people that never comes. But in the meantime, they're emptying hospitals of patients who are cleared for discharge. So I have a mother who's kind of next on line for the nursing home and a hospital that's calling me and saying, come get your mother. Yeah. Yeah. Did she say, didn't she say something like, I wish, I wish those planes had hit this yes. building? Yes. Yes. Of course, she was still in the hospital at the time that the planes were hitting buildings, mm-hmm. but that, you know, the move from one place to the other, and I'm sure, particularly since Neither my brother nor I went with her on that journey from one place to the other. I mean, she adjusted very well to the nursing home environment, 
That said, the first month is um, not pretty and wasn't for her either. And, I, you know, I mean, that I think that that just added to it. Um, so do you, do you think that, is it your sense, um, and I mean this as a journalist and somebody who's writing about this as well as someone who's gone through it, that we are collecting some, some smarts, some tools about how to live this kind of life passage uh, with our parents, with ourselves? I wish that I could give you an unequivocal yes mm-hmm. on that. Um, you know, for a million reasons. One being that, um, you know, it, if people really wanted to know stuff about this, I would probably sell gazillion books. But I'm, you know, maybe I will and maybe I won't. But I think that the denial and the not wanting to visit this um, before you have to is very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think that, and this is in no way scientific, this is totally anecdotal, I think that the denial is stronger on the part of the adult children than it is on the part of the elderly. Mm-hmm. I think the elderly understand um, you know, where they're going and that the question is only, you know, how long is it going to take? And I, I think that they react very differently to a lot of things that upset us while it's going on don't upset them. Um, as I've toured with the book, I have repeatedly been approached by older people saying, I want to talk about this with my children, and they won't let me. Mm -hmm. That also means, and this is kind of an American tendency, that then people will be very alone with it, right, when they finally come to it, when they finally are forced to reckon with it. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's very unfortunate. I mean, I, I... I think one of the responsibilities that the children ought to take beyond the practical ones is uh, opening the door to that conversation as often as they possibly can. Hmm. That was not a problem in my case. I mean, my mother had been, you know, talking about this since the beginning of time, and my mother used every family meeting at the nursing home to make clear what her end-of-life philosophy was. I mean, my mother behaved like somebody who was trying to create a record Mm -hmm. so that, you know, when she made decisions at the end, they weren't decisions that came out of the blue. But um, um, even in my family and... As I say, my brother did his share of the work and then some, and in many ways was much better at it than I was because he was um, 
better able to compartmentalize than I was. I mean, he did what needed to be done, and then he lived his life. He didn't sort of wander around with a black cloud hanging over him all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, he found those conversations um, virtually impossible to sit through. Hmm. He hmm. would come to the meetings. He would fiddle around with his BlackBerry. He would leave early. Um he would tell me that, you know, he was scared to death that I was making it so apparent, you know, what my feelings were that, you know, if God forbid something happened to my mother, they were going to assume I did it. Uh, So, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that people can do within their families, perhaps, is figure out which of the children is the most comfortable having that conversation. I mean, everybody doesn't have it as long doesn't right. have to right. have it as long as somebody has it. So that's also that a piece of self-awareness or awareness of the family dynamics. Yeah, and I think that generally the parents know which hmm. child that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I'm also quite persuaded in the case of my family that it was easier for me to play that role and easier for my mother to involve me in that um, because she was so much more attached and vice versa to my brother. Mm-hmm. Is, that hard, um, is that painful for you to say? Is that hard to say, or was that, is that no, something you because, made peace with? I mean, I've made peace with it, and yeah. you know, I I had a parallel relationship with my father, who mm-hmm. unfortunately died, you know, very young. And Michael and I used to joke all the time that he got all these extra years with his parent. <laughs> and yeah. you know, I lost mine when I was twenty five. Yeah. On the other hand, I got this reconciliation time at the back end that my brother never got with my father. Right, right. Um, I mean, I think families tend to divide up in Mm -hmm. certain kinds of ways. I'm just grateful that, you know, she and I had the time to appreciate each other, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, You know, I don't know, and stop me if you don't want to go here and obviously you have the capacity to edit this out but you know the one thing we haven't talked about at all is that you know my mother essentially chose to die when she was ready to right and stopped hydration and um um did it when my brother was on vacation and for a very long time a very, very, very long time, um, I was just enraged with him for not being there with me. It took me a long time to realize that my mother was the architect of that event. Mm-hmm. I think you you said, um, I mean, that's... those That question, or that... That possibility of choosing death is is one of the things that gets raised in this new reality of what did your mother say? We live live too long and die too slowly. 
I mean, I, I see that theme in the blog a lot. A lot of people raise that question. I thought one of the things I thought was so interesting and surprising as you talk about the medical uh, trajectory of this is that old age is, is not a cause of death, cannot be an official cause of death. I, that blew me away Yeah. when I figured that out. It just blew me away. Um, I mean, the notion that we're so attached to this sort of disease model of thinking about things that um, you can't fill out a death certificate that way. Um, actually, the, there's some wonderful stuff in the Sherlyn Newland book, yeah, How We how Die, we die mm-hmm. um, where he talks about, you know, how you know, you sort of explode into eternity, but you don't die of anything that has a name. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm curious about how going through this experience with your mother um, it has ch- changed the way you think about aging, your aging. <laughs> I mean, not just dying, but aging. Right? I was getting old. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it. Maybe I'll feel differently about this at a different age. But, I mean, I think that probably for most of us, I mean, even, you know, much younger people who have things like cancer, I think that most of us are much more afraid of the process than we are of the fact of it. Would you agree? Um, what do you mean that our that we're we're more afraid of what we know than what we are no? I mean, I'm not afraid of being dead so much. I as of the I dying. am afraid of the dying. Yes, and um, you know, particularly having you know watched this kind of dying. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm wishing for cancer, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, I'm single, I'm childless, um, and, um, you know, the idea of how do you get through this if you're by yourself, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, makes the hair on my arms stand up. Yeah. You've done some interesting pieces um, about women teaming up in old age yes, because women yes. do live longer, right? Yes, um, yes. There was this article in 2004. Um, it, it, it struck me. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had that fantasy. I'm, I mean, I'm 50. You know, I've got <laughs> theoretically some years ahead of me. But um, I've thought about, uh, I don't know, somehow getting to some stage in my life where I could pull together some of my favorite people that we all might inhabit some island or community or neighborhood or something. I mean, it, it strikes me because the, the nuclear family uh, is more as we at least um, romanticized it at an earlier stage in American culture. It's, it's, it's not there anymore in, in any case. And uh, it strikes me that one of the things that this new, new old age, new dying may force us to do is recreate community um, or create new kinds of community. That will take us all the way through to the end of our lives. And, um, you know, my favorite fantasy, and I think that this is probably true for 
most women, even the ones who live in families, is me and my girlfriends. Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and whatever and children or grandchildren or significant uh, others might or might not be around. Join and I've in. had an extended conversation with one friend of mine who um, has a husband. And, you know, so we can't start <laughs> choosing our real estate while he's still with us. <laughs> um, but we have very funny conversations about whether, um, you know, if we have long-term care insurance, which is something that has many pluses and many minuses, but both of us happen to have, you know, can we use our policies, you know, to have somebody drive us and somebody cook and mm. somebody do manicures mm. and, mm. Um, you know, sort of the ultimate summer camp or college dormitory or spa for old women. Right. I mean, you you uh, quoted a, a a scholar who's thought about this, and and so there would be legal implications to this, maybe that that there's that that legally friendship, um, has, uh, there's a second class status of friendship, and that if if we recreate new kinds of community at the end of life, that there would also be practical things like that to take up. I think that's probably right, and I think you know that that's. Um, I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm quite sure single people think about a lot more than people who live in families. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have very strong feelings about, you know, the general um, devaluing of friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I mean, it's lack of legal standing. I actually took care of... A, dying friend quite a long time before my mother was sick and I can um, who had parents and a sister who um, I guess the best way to put it would be to say went missing right right everybody doesn't rise to this occasion like you and your brother did I took care of him and my mother was absolutely beside herself. I mean, she kept saying, he's not your family, he's not mm-hmm. your family. And I kept saying to her, you know, Mama, who do you imagine is going to do this for me? Mm-hmm. You know, you'll be gone. Um, I'm not sure that Michael is, you know, cut out for the whole experience. There are certainly great big chunks of it that he could do. But, um, you know, I was trying to get through to her that um, it was pretty likely going to be a friend. Mm -hmm. And that how could she be so stuck in this notion that only family does this? Mm -hmm. I mean... In a perfect world, I suppose, we would all look at the model of gay men during the AIDS crisis because those were families of choice, not families of origin, and they took wonderful care of each other. It's such an interesting thing to name. Um, But I don't know. I mean, you know, my only personal solution to this is... Um, to be very conservative on the financial side. Right. 
and understand that um, I understand how much it potentially costs, and I understand that I don't have children who can pick up the slack, which means that, you know, whatever kind of care I need, I'm going to have to buy. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little maniacal about making sure I have enough money to do that. And I mean, as somebody who does have children, that the 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 other side of that is you don't want them to do it, right? And when I read mm-hmm. your book and all of everything you went through with your mother, you know, part of you is thinking, I don't, I don't want to do that to anyone I, I love. And uh, yes, mm-hmm. I understand. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Mm-hmm. I actually taught a writing class at the nursing home where my mother had been and it was a class that my mother took when she was there and did it as a volunteer there were six people in the class and all six of them's children wanted them to come live with them Hmm. and all six of them chose the one place that I would say most of us would least like to be hmm. rather than be both a burden to their children and utterly dependent on hmm. their children. This is really painful. It's hard, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you think about, um, you know, the nature of identity and what happens to it across the lifespan. This is something I've thought about before, but it really struck me as I was reading your story. I mean, your mother is this woman who'd been a nurse. She was a mother. She was a wife. Uh, you, know, you've descri- you described her as intelligent, thrifty, resilient, resourceful. She thrived as a widow, actually. There was this, she, she was okay with solitude. She was independent. You know, then later... And and so that's who she was, right? I mean, that's the mother, or those are ways, some ways to describe the the woman you yes, knew. Yes, yes, yes. Later on, and very useful tools at the end of her life. All really, of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, then mm-hmm. there's you. You talk about the difficulty of language. You know, suddenly you become elderly. Suddenly you're a senior citizen. Or there was one review of your book where. Someone described your mother as a feisty octogenarian, which I know they meant as a compliment, right? But it doesn't describe that woman in her fullness. I guess, I mean, that's interesting that you say that those qualities that defined her at an earlier age were also there for her at a later age. But do you know what I'm saying? It... Yeah, and I'm I'm actually not sure um, and... You know, I'm going to have to wait until I'm there, I suppose, to know the answer to this. Although it really is a great gift besides my mother to have other very old people in my life. You know, parents of friends, the Mm -hmm. people that I taught in the nursing home. I mean, they are incredible teachers and teachers in a different way when they're not your mother. Right. But... um, I'm not persuaded that it isn't worse for us in middle age imagining it than it is for them experiencing it Mm. because it happens to them incrementally. 
-hmm. And in a way, it happens to us like a hammer blow. Watching them, we see them. Watching them, Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure, ultimately, that it actually is as painful. I mean, I I tell a story in the book about um, my mother announcing to me upon return from a vacation, I mean, first words out of her mouth when I walked into the assisted living place she was living at the time, that she needed diapers. And, you know, she sort of presented it to me terribly matter-of-factly, which was my mother's way. I mean, I need diapers, and I need sweet and low, and I need oatmeal, if I remember correctly. And off I went to the grocery store, and um, it was like every synapse in my brain had come undone. I mean, I didn't know where I was. I was just so unstrung by this Mm. um, that a neighbor, you know, sort of scooped me up in my very own grocery store and took me from aisle to aisle. And I'd still avoid the diaper aisle in the grocery store. Um, I said to a friend of mine later, I didn't understand why that particular marker was so upsetting, so much more upsetting to me than it was to her. And my friend's observation was that there were many reasons why it was a relief to her by then. Because mm, mm, mm. getting from the wheelchair to the bathroom was causing falls and all kinds of problems. And, you know, it didn't... The news didn't come to her right, as, right. you know, I just walked into the door and mom says I need diapers. It... So I'm not sure that it's as bad when it actually happens as it is to watch it happen. I sure hope not. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, the the again to the, this the experience of aging, right? I mean, there's your mother. There's the dying slowly, but there's the living long, and aging. Really experiencing yourself to be aging starts much earlier than. This, these your your eighties, right? So, and I mean, I mean, even even at fifty, I mean, it strikes me that there's something about aging. What you start to realize there's kind of incremental loss. There are also things being gained, right? But especially physically, there there are just things changing. Um, yes, I, I mean, know. I'm at an age where I find the physical changes um, really noticeable mm-hmm. compared to when I was your age, mm-hmm. um, and um, I really hate them. Mm-hmm. But my guess, in a way, is that one um, gradually makes one's peace with some of those things. Yeah, but it does. I mean, if you think about whatever you hated 10 years ago, right? you've, you've made peace with that probably, right? I mean, that... Yeah, yeah. There is a stage, though, where, mm-hmm. at least for me what I was physically capable of pretty dramatically shifted. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't climb ladders and change track light bulbs anymore, for okay. instance, because I have bad bones. Right. And it makes me really angry that this stupid thing at this age is not a safe thing for me to do. 
But yeah, I mean, we all look in the mirror every day, right? Mm-hmm. I guess, and I'm just, I'm just wondering if, um, if there's any way you do that incremental change differently, having lived through that. What did you say? That far shore of caregiving yeah, with your mother. Well, or does it, does it, do we just have to go through it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's both. I mm-hmm. think you just have to go through it. And I think that um, if rather than, you know, sort of squeeze your eyes shut, mm-hmm. um, you decide that, that there's something interesting about it mm-hmm. um, if only in the kind of spiritual life cycle sense of the word I mean you don't get a choice <laughs> right and there right? is a lot that's interesting about it when you I think that that's right yeah. I mean I see lots of old people who describe it as hugely liberating mm-hmm um, you know, not to have to be pleasing in quite the same way, not to have to look great, um, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and it's not, it's physically, it's some, that, that the, what is, what is, whatever is pleasing or interesting is at odds with physical appearance, which is not necessarily true earlier in life. I mean, you know, I think that some version of it starts to happen um, when people retire or even partially retire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, who you are in the world changes. Your identity shifts. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, you know, it's a terrible cliche, but what's the alternative? Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and so it, 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 it struck me that you you mentioned AIDS a minute ago and those, those communities of gay men who cared for each other um, when AIDS was a death sentence. You were, you were an early, one of the early reporters on AIDS, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And you've also done, a, I notice, a lot of writing about autism across the years. Yes, yes. Um, which the autism was mm-hmm. inspired by very dear friends with autistic children, mm-hmm. and I wanted to understand what was going on with their children mm-hmm. and possibly be able to have a relationship with those children. Mm-hmm. And it's that is an experience that's reached a certain critical mass in the culture. Um, I mean, I don't know, one in hundred and fifty children born of course it's the spectrum and you know all of this but i don't know what i'm what i'm getting at here is the here's another way maybe our culture has to adapt to this reality of living long and dying slowly is it it, it forces us to think about <laughs> let's see uh, imperfection and frailty as a a part of the life cycle and of course it always has been but our culture's been quite good at hiding those things or pretending like it won't happen to me where possible. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that, I don't know if you're quite at this age yet, 
but you know there also is the point where you know half if not more than that of your friends have cancer Hmm. Um, and you know I mean that's sort of strange and difficult Mm -hmm. Um, it's part of the way we live now the way we are able to live now it's part of living longer well and I think one of the things that is a great gift of being a journalist is um, you get to kind of poke around at these things Mm -hmm. before they're your things if you want to if that makes sense yes I mean, you get with the with the sort of distancing mechanism of the notebook between you and it mm-hmm. um, to watch it. I mean, the I for me the most fascinating thing in a way about the autism stuff was um, the fortitude of those mothers. You know, the sense that. You just get dealt this card, and if somebody had said to you at some point earlier on, do you think you could do X, Y, Z, your answer would probably be no. Mm -hmm. Um, But mostly, we do what we have to do. Right. You end up living a yes. (laughs) I'm sorry? You end up living a yes. 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 yes, What a nice way to put it. Mm. What a nice way to put it. Mm. There's a... You quote May Sarton at the beginning of your book, Bittersweet Season. I have yeah. seen what courage can be when there is no hope. It's hard to think about, uh, you know, what what are we um, without hope? Well, I mean, you know, I, I I think that there's a different answer to that, clearly depending on what your religious belief system is. Right, right. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think my mother is sitting on a pink cloud someplace. Yeah. You know, I don't think that there was a pearly gates moment where they decided she was, you know, going to heaven or she was going to hell. That's not the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can certainly see how that would be a great comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it isn't generally the way Jewish people think about it. Um, but the, I mean, the the thing is, when you this 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 idea of parenting your parent, um, so much of what you so 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 many of the contours of what of that experience are are akin to the experience of becoming a parent in the first place and you have this completely helpless creature and I know in the 21st century or you know in our time many of us feel completely unequipped nobody taught you you have to figure it all out as you go but you have a life before you right correct you're also investing in a future right I mean, what you do wrong, if there is a wrong, and what you do right, and how you do it. And this is very presumptuous of me because I've never been a parent. But 
um, you're launching somebody onto a life, not sort of witnessing somebody going in the other direction. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, I would think mm-hmm. that that's what the difference is. Well, certainly there's lots of hope in it. I mean, certainly hope is, a, is, is alive and, and large and expansive. And, I'm not, and it's hope for concrete things that will happen, right, in this, in this life. Um, Correct. Is that, is, is that what you were thinking about when you chose that quote, that May Certain quote? Um, no, I was just thinking about um, how my mother's fortitude and my mother's grace and, you know, my mother never... Um, I mean, I'm not going to say my mother never complained because that would be ridiculous, but um, my mother never acted like she... I mean, she was really brave. Hmm. That's all. She was really brave. I think that she made brave decisions, I think, she lived the end of her life um, in a way that, you know, if I do half as well, I would be proud of myself. Mm. Um, You know, and I would not have said that about um, the younger her. I don't Mm. think, for instance, that, you know, she was um, really hardwired to be a great mother, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think that she was a really fortitudinous old lady. Um, (laughs) But um, your thing, what you said about the children is interesting because I was constantly aware that there was a comparison but not a comparison that I could make, Hmm. except empathically, and that really empathy only takes you so far on Mm -hmm. some of these things, Mm -hmm. and ask lots of people um, which was harder, taking care of a child or taking care of an aging parent, Mm -hmm. and the answer was unanimously an aging parent. Um, And I could only conclude that that's because you know, you're not pointing towards the future. Although you are completely imprinted by this experience. I mean, you said earlier you didn't know how long, right, that it was not knowing what would happen next or how long it would go on and that life wouldn't go back to being the same until, until your mother had died, until all of this was over, but in fact, you didn't go back to being the same when no, she was I gone. No, I didn't. Um, and um, um, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that, actually. Yeah. About? Um, uh, well, I mean, you know, certainly there are people who would say that still thinking about this 
and talking about it and all of that this mm-hmm. many years later um, must prove that, you know, I'm having some unnatural grief experience. I don't think that that's the case. No. I mean, I think I fell into a subject that interested me journalistically that, you know, seemed to be have a very powerful demographic driving it Mm -hmm. um, and that was going to affect so many people that it was worth thinking about for such a long time. Yeah. Um, You know, but... um, It also, I mean, it's, it's... you find out um, you find out what you're made of if you weren't already sure you knew the answer to that mm-hmm. um, and um, if there's any advantage at all to them having this long slow dying um, you know there are there's a lot of time to get things right that you didn't get right earlier Mm -hmm. Um, I mean you know definitely changed the architecture of my family it definitely changed um, what the nature of my memories of my mother are Mm -hmm. and I imagine will be forever Um, if somebody had told me you know how many years ago that I would miss my mother. I would have said, don't be ridiculous. Mm. Um, And I do miss my mother. Um, But I think we ought to miss people. Mm -hmm. And it's that mother who you got to know at the end of her life when... Correct. In some ways you would say she was diminished. I mean, she wasn't uh, that strong person or that physically strong person she'd been... At a different stage. No, but the ways in which she was always so mentally strong mm-hmm. um, were um, not exactly wonderful when you're a little kid. Yeah. Um, and But they turned out to be great virtues mm. when she was old. Mm. Um, you know, she didn't have um, she she wasn't a magical thinker. <laughs> right. Um, what, what, we've we've gone we've 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 been talking for a long time, and I I wonder, you know, is there something I haven't asked you, or something else you'd want to say? I mean, I'll go back to that quote that I quoted you from the beginning from of yourself that you're talking about this far shore of caregiving an all-consuming and life-altering experience that rings you out, uses you up, and then sends you back into the world with your heart full and your eyes open if you let it. Is there, is there some place we haven't gone? I'm sure there are many places we haven't gone, but is there something else that feels important for you to say? Well, I mean, you know, I think that there are um, always going to be a subset of people who... Uh, when it's over in their own families are not going to 
think about it. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I guess that that's fine. Um, I mean, it's not my nature. Right. Um, um, but... It certainly seems to me that since it's unavoidably going to happen to you, too, Mm -hmm. to everybody, too, that thinking about it is probably better than not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the one hand, it makes me more scared and on the other hand it makes me less scared right well it's about leaning into reality as you say I mean the fact that it's going to happen that it's this is part of what it means to be alive now for many many people will mean yeah Um, and you know watching people who do it well is a great life lesson, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Jane, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was really a, a pleasure. I've really sunk into this conversation. Um, I I don't know if we're going to produce this this summer or later, um, but we will let you know what's happening with it. And mm-hmm. um, I just really uh, appreciated the conversation and and also just the work you're doing, the writing you're doing is really important. And I'm Thank thrilled you. to know that you're listening to our show. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, I good. love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually... Um, um, I was fascinated and um, curious by the name change. Oh, mm-hmm. Did you like speaking of faith? Um, I like them both. Uh-huh. I always, I think, wondered whether, um, since I happened upon it more by accident than by design, mm-hmm. um, whether the idea wasn't, you know, to sort of scoop in more people who weren't capital R religious. Yeah, well, and what happened is a lot of people like that got scooped in, right? But it was always by accident. And it, we, the, 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 the faith word, we, we had to spend so much time, and we heard people say when they talked to the show, to friends about the show, they had to spend so much time saying what it's not because that word is so loaded in the culture. Yes, yes. But I also felt eventually that to say... Speaking of faith, it wasn't really a good descriptor of what went on in the in the program. You know, it's it's. I mean, it's about life, and it's 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 about what it means to be human, and it's not it was it's not talking about faith, which is some compartment over here, right? I mean, I'm talking about how people are asking these questions of meaning. You know, maybe living their theology, um, uh, in the thick of life, in the thick of whatever they do, whatever their interest or passion is, and. Uh, so really, I mean, I wanted a more spacious, we wanted a more spacious, inviting name. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. also seemed like a better headline um, 
for what actually happens in the conversations. I mean, I still... You I know, think that's right. Mm. I mean, I think that anybody who happened on it by accident understood immediately what they had found. Mm. Um, but, you know, that was my guess, was mm-hmm. that, you know, if you were just sort of looking down a program listing, depending on... Yeah. How you defined Mm -hmm. yourself, Mm -hmm. that would seem like something that had to do with you or something that didn't have to do with you. Right. Exactly. And I mean, now we grow into this name, right? Now we live into this. And uh, that, I I really feel it as a work in progress. But it feels, it feels better to me. It feels more comfortable and like it's full of possibility. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I mean, I also think that it's wonderful if it um, is more inviting, you know, to people who mm-hmm. – um, well, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's lovely to meet you in this way, and I hope maybe I'll get to meet you in person. One day maybe John can get us together. That would be wonderful. Yeah. I think you have the best job in the whole world. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you. It's you know, it's Besides a job. Besides living in a pretty fabulous place, except in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind it. And even, yeah. you don't like it in I general, or no, just I no? I don't winter? mind it. I don't mind the winter too much. Yeah, I have a son who plays ice hockey, so. It works for him. And there are all those tunnels, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so you don't have to go outside. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and so many smart people. Yes. It's a good place. It's a good place. And um, let me know if you ever come to the cities as well. If you could, oh, ever come I here. Would, that would be wonderful. Okay. That would be wonderful. All right. Um, so we're talking summer or later. Yes. I just It's going to depend on what our, what happens with our schedule. Um, if we can fit it in this summer. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Um, it was a great honor. You have no idea what a pain in the ass I made out of myself <laughs> telling everybody how much I wanted to do this. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I asked you because I, w- I liked what I saw. So thank you so much. And, um, yeah, just I wish you well with the book and with everything. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Ditto. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah. Um, you too. Yeah.